Welcome to Say Soaks. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. Wherever you are right now, I'm so glad you could join us for week three of Closer as we look at the power of one another. Or more specifically, we look at the New Testament passages that have the phrase one another. Love one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. There's a lot of them. And I am encouraged and I'm excited to be a part of this series. But I'm also, I'm probably even more encouraged and excited that we're doing this series at all. Because what we've seen over the last couple of weeks and what we're going to continue to see over the next couple of weeks is that the New Testament one another's are kind of a cure for a lot of what ails us in our marriages and in our families and in our friendship groups and community and in our church. And that is especially true about the topic we're going to talk about today. You know, we are right now living at an interesting uh, conversion um, in our culture and in, uh, and in the Christian community, kind of a conversion of two not so great things. On the one side, uh, Western cultures, of really throughout the world, the Western-style cultures have been experiencing for several years now, like way before COVID, have been experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, Eric talked about that uh, week one, just a, a couple of weeks ago. He gave a few stats. I want to give a few more stats. Uh, these are pre-COVID stats, where three out of five Americans report being lonely. One in five millennials report as to not having a single friend. The problem of loneliness is so bad in the UK that in 2018 they appointed a minister of loneliness. Uh, 75% of Brits living in the UK um, say they do not know the names of their neighbors. It is also, uh, there's a whole new industry being built around what is called the loneliness economy. Uh, One example is rentafriend.com, where right now over 620,000 people make money offering platonic, non-sexual companionship at $40 an hour. 620,000 people make money doing that. And it's not just a, a social or mental health crisis. It's making us physically ill. Listen to some of these stats. The physical effects of loneliness are worse than not exercising, is equivalent to alcoholism, and as twice as harmful as being obese. Statistically, it is similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, regardless of income, gender, age, or nationality. It's bad. And the dangerous thing is a lot of us don't even know how lonely we are or how it's affecting us. So that's kind of on on one side. On the other side, we have the decline of Christianity in America and actually the uh, the change in perception of the church and of Christians in America that is that is just pretty bad. The worst is certainly in our lifetime. Here's some more stats. The fast the fastest growing religious category in America are the nuns. That's N O N E S, not N U N S. Um this people that have no religious affiliation at all. Gen Z, those born between 1999 and 2015, um, is the first generation to officially be born into a a post-Christian American culture. The percent of atheists in Gen Z is twice the national average, uh, which is noteworthy because it's such a young generation and atheism is not uh, typical for that age uh, the prevailing sentiments toward Christianity and the church, I mean, there's been multiple studies and surveys through Pew Research and Barna. The prevailing sentiments toward Christianity uh, in America is, is somewhere between, is, is, we're, we're viewed usually somewhere between either uh, benign but irrelevant or harmful extremists. And in fact, uh, when it comes to what happens in our country, 
Over 40% of Americans believe that people of faith and religion in general are more part of the problem than the solution. So we are living at a time of convergence of some not great things, uh, but and at the risk of overselling this message, I sincerely believe that what we're going to talk about today is perhaps the most strategic, the most practical, and the most powerful thing at our disposal to, that can combat both things simultaneously. I mean, seriously, if you care about the, about the loneliness epidemic and what it's doing to ourselves, to our family, to our neighbors, to our community, if you care about how the Christian, about Christianity and how the church is viewed in culture, then please lean forward and engage in this topic. Now, I know with that kind of buildup, um, I know that once I say what the topic is for the day, there's going to be a little bit of a letdown because it's not going to seem all that profound or all that powerful, but it is. So stick with me. Today, I want to talk about radical hospitality. Paul, in uh, Romans chapter 12, says, pursue hospitality. In, uh, in Hebrews 13, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, says, show hospitality to one another. And, and so, but uh, when, when we say that, we have to wonder, so what does that actually mean? Because when I say the word hospitality, it's quite possible that we're not all picturing the same thing. Because you might be picturing, you know, something from the hospitality industry, you know, like hotels and restaurants. Or, or maybe, you're, maybe you have images in your mind from the likes of people like Joanna Gaines and Ina Garten or Southern Living or Bon Appetit of just like wonderful food and perfect settings and sort of spaces that are like intimidatingly on trend, you know. And maybe that's what you're picturing. Is that what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hospitality? Actually, it's a pretty broad category, um, and there's a few different pictures that the Bible uh, there's a few different pictures that the Bible gives us, and we're going to talk about two of them today. We're going to talk about the social necessity of shared meals, and then we're going to talk about the theology of hospitality and how it is at the very core of what God is doing in the world and what He is calling His people to. So we have a lot, and so let's jump in. And so number one, shared meals mean more than you think. Shared meals mean more than you think. You know, we have, in Scripture, we are given multiple pictures of the power and the importance of shared meals. And one of the most sort of poignant is to look at how the, new, how the, how the early church um, interacted with one another. You know, the early church was born, uh, the, the first generation church was born in Acts chapter 2. By the end of Acts 2, we are given the first sort of snapshot of what life in the early church looked like. And so let's read what it says in Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if we were to say, okay, what's the handful of things, the big pillars of what life in the early church looked like, we'd say, we'd say well, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so they, they learned together. 
They fellowshiped, which is kind of a weird word. Fellowship is kind of a Christian-y word to saying that they spent time together. They worshiped and they prayed together and they ate together. Like those were the, those were the big things. And as they did them, you know, the Lord is adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And some of those things seem like no-brainers. You know, like learning together, worshiping together, praying together. Like, of course, any Christian community is going to be doing that. But a couple of those things, we, we sort of feel the freedom to sort of take or leave. Fellowship, spending time together, and certainly eating together on a regular basis, having shared meals with one another. And to me, I hear that and I see that kind of Christian community and it's so, it's so appealing and it sounds wonderful, but honestly, it sort of feels like a little bit of a bygone era back when life was just different. And I know I'm not describing everybody when I say that, you know, because I know that there are people, even at Chase Oaks, that are just wonderful at hospitality. And you've got diverse and wonderful relationships because of it. Uh, a lot of us are not like that. I, I want to be. I'm not. I am keenly aware, I'm keenly aware that I am probably not the best person to be giving this sermon. Um, this is aspirational for me. But I, I, did, I know that if I don't make a sincere effort, weeks will turn into months and months will turn into multiple months. And I'm not gathering with other people just sort of informally. I'm not having shared meals. But I'm, I'm confronted by the fact that when I look in the Bible, shared meals are a big deal was certainly part of what what life looked like in the early church, but also even broader, even bigger than that, just about every act of redemption in the Bible is either accompanied by or commemorated with a shared meal. God's miraculous rescue of the, the Israelites from Egypt becomes the Passover feast that they celebrate every year. When they were in the wilderness, he, he sustains them and he rescues them with a daily shared meal of manna, which was later then commemorated with the, the annual feast of tabernacles. When the prodigal returns in Jesus' parable, the first thing the father does is throw a big feast. Jesus' last time with his, uh, with his disciples was a meal. Jesus commands us to participate in communion, which is a meal. And the list goes on And on and on, because in the Bible, and actually even beyond the Bible, the Bible sort of recognizes that a shared meal is about more than just the food. Before COVID, um, my family and I wanted to get to know our neighbors a little bit better. You know, we, I live in Allen. Uh, we We like the community that we live in, the street that we live on. Um, but it has rear entry garages. We have alleyways. And so we don't actually see our neighbors all that much. Uh, but I enjoy the street that we're on. You know, I, uh, one of the things that I love about the street that we're on is that it's just beautifully diverse. And we've got black and brown and white. And we just and we have people from other cultures, you know, living on our street. And so we invited them to a big meal. And at that dinner, um, we had a family from Russia and a family from Taiwan and a family from Mexico and a family from India. And we uh, asked everyone to bring kind of a family favorite dish that they could share. And they did. And so we not only had this sort of full home, we had this international potluck and the food was really good and it was great. But it was about more than the food. You know, it, it gave us this huge step forward in connecting with our neighbors because that is what a shared meal does because there's shared meals mean more than we think they do. God created us to be social creatures 
And for all of human history, in every culture of the world, there's been a recognition of the power of the shared meal. To draw people together, to break down barriers, to deepen bonds, to celebrate, to mourn. Because there's more going on in shared meals than than the food. This is why, by the way, one of the main criticisms against Jesus was his audacity to eat with sinners. You know, as we um, as we think about the loneliness, the loneliness epidemic that we're in, and as some of us, or as we're all sort of emerging from COVID and starting to interact with people more and all that, I think that some of us need a better normal than our pre-COVID selves. Because some of us weren't doing all that great in this area before COVID. Some of us need to be having our neighbors over for dinner more. Or connecting with the people in our life group more. Having, having just meeting informally for coffee or, or, or for lunches. And we need to actually do it. <laughs> Instead of just talk about it. You know, some of us have been wanting to connect with our neighbors for like years. Right? And we recognize, if you're anything like me, that the the natural sort of course of our lives, the pace of our lives, the style of our lives, doesn't, doesn't sort of lend itself to this. If we wait to find the time, we're going to be waiting forever. You will never find the time. You have to make the time. And it doesn't have to be elaborate, you know, you just have to order pizza and that's fine. In fact, if you try too hard to impress, you can ruin it. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, we, our family, we wanted to connect with some neighbors we didn't know very well. The invitation went out day of, we invited them over for hot dogs. I mean, like not exactly bon appetit. And it was great. You know, we had a great conversation and I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we did it. You know, I, I titled this message Radical Hospitality, and so far all we've talked about is prioritizing shared meals, um, which is not all that radical, except when you're, you know, spend 18 months in social distancing, or except like with our style of life, with our pace of life, it starts to feel a little bit radical, and it's kind of crazy of what should be ordinary starts to feel radical. I remember when my oldest daughter, Abby, was... Um, in college several years ago, she spent a semester in Norway. And uh, as many people have noted, uh, Western Europe is kind of ahead of America in some ways and some not so great ways. You know, they have been post-Christian for quite a while now. Uh, and I actually think some of the lifestyle things that lend itself toward feelings of isolation and loneliness, uh, they're probably even more familiar with than we are. But when she, she went to Norway, and I remember talking to her while she was there, and she was talking about just how beautiful it was. But also just kind of how it felt a little bit heavy and lonely. And she started sort of feeling lonely while she was there. But then she started meeting people in her classes. And she invited kind of a, a potential friend, another student, who could be kind of a potential friend over for dinner at her apartment. And that student was so blown away by that and so, you know, grateful and so impacted by that. She told Abby that she had never before been invited into someone else's home. And, you know, America is not that extreme, um, but you can see how we could get there. And I remember, and I don't know if that was like a unique story just with that student or if that's kind of what the culture is like in Norway. I don't know. But I remember thinking when, when she um, 
when she told me that, it's like, if that is really, if that's part of the culture in Norway, I hope that the Christians in Norway recognize that they could stand out, like, through hospitality alone. You know, um, and, and in that, you know, in that scenario, too, Abby was not, she was not trying to make a point. She was not trying to give, a, like, a Christian sales pitch or, you know, any of that. She was the one feeling lonely. And she, so she took the initiative and she reached out and she leveraged the power of the shared meal because, you know, throughout all human history, that's how humans connect. We are social creatures, but our style of life, our pace of life, the technology and the conveniences we rely on are slowly disconnecting us from life-giving relationships. And even though I just gave an illustration of my daughter who was, you know, when she was in college, I think that every age demographic and every people group in America is struggling or has impacted this in different ways. And one group that is kind of near and dear to me because I'm in this demographic is middle-aged men. I heard comedian um, John Mulaney um, say in one of his specials, your dad doesn't have friends. Your mom has friends and your mom's friends have husbands. Which is just kind of brutally true and funny. And well, I want to introduce you to one uh, Chase Oker who is combating that and trying to get guys to connect and build friendships. And he's doing it one burger and one brisket at a time. Let's check this out. My wife asked me if I wanted a cave about the first month we were married. Uh, within a few hours of her saying that, I had a cave. <laughs> The man cave really came out of a need and a want to just serve guys. A place for just guys to come and hang out, watch games, and it gave me an opportunity to cook food for them. Food for me, with my family growing up, it was just always, I don't know the importance of the word, but we just came around the table. We, we ate dinner every night, and so I've just sort of continued to use food to fellowship. From that, really, the grill that you guys saw is an Argentine grill, and I love doing that kind of cooking. But it all centers around just fellowship, getting together, hanging out, just having a good time. It's just what I do. It's just what we do at our house. So it's really been a ministry. I mean, we've had guys here who've lost their jobs, and they come and hang out. You know what I mean? So they're going through difficult times. We've had guys here who've lost spouses. I've had a neighbor who went through a really difficult time. He came over here one night with tears in his eyes, and told us some you know, really difficult things that were going on in his life, and the group came around and prayed for him. There's been a lot of things to a lot of guys. But for me, from day one, I would call it a ministry to whoever came here, where, wherever they were, whatever stage of life they were in. Just a place, it was a safe place to come and just hang out. Isn't that cool? Yeah. You know... Now, now, creating a super cool man cave, I've been at Steve's man cave, it's really great. Uh, but creating, that's, that's not going to be for everybody, you know, that's Steve's thing. But what could your thing be? And it doesn't have to be elaborate, uh, but it probably does have to be intentional. That the natural course of our lives is not going to drift towards this. And also, if you were to sort of hear this and say, you know what, I've been, 
this has been in the back of my mind. I know I need to connect to my neighbors more. I know I need to connect. Now I'm going to start doing this. And you have a dinner. And don't, don't be discouraged if, like, nothing magical happens. You know, nothing sort of really special. Because a lot of times it's like, eh, man, I guess that was good. You know, in Hebrews 13, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality because in so doing, some have, or that through hospitality, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And that is in part a reference to a story way back in Genesis where that happened in like in a really literal way. But it's also making reference that, that through this common thing of hospitality, there's oftentimes more going on than meets the eye. A lot of times there's something spiritual going on or there's some connection. And, a lot of, and, and we've experienced that. A lot of us have. Or there's a you know, truth is spoken into our life or there's a connection. And just like, like the, the planets align and it's kind of, and, and it's the good stuff, you know, that happens. And like any parent who knows, who's tried to sort of uh, orchestrate quality time, you know, like, you, you know, you, you have no idea when the good stuff's going to happen. Quality time is like the needle in the haystack of quantity time. You just have to do it a lot. So however often you're getting together with your neighbors, however often you're going out to lunch or coffee with people in your small group or whatever, we could probably all afford to just do it more and just do it a lot. So at one level, hospitality is about gathering together. And we see in Scripture that gathering together over food is special because there's more to a shared meal than kind of meets the eye. So that's sort of on one side of what hospitality is like. But on the other, when biblical hospitality, the theology behind it is way, way, way bigger than meals. Hospitality is at the very core. It's at the very center of what God is doing in the world. And it is what he calls his people to. And it is one of, if not the most attractive thing we have to offer to a cynical and to a skeptical World. This is where hospitality gets radical. Okay. In ancient cultures, when the Bible was written, it was common, it was well known that hospitality was a value. And most ancient cultures had some type of value around hospitality to, to allow for travel to happen. When you and I travel, we expect to be able to stay at a hotel or stay at an Airbnb or stay in the home of someone we know. And in ancient times, in ancient cultures, that was nearly impossible. One, hospitality, I mean, uh, sorry, travel was dangerous. And so not very many people did it. And so since there were so few travelers, you couldn't really sustain an industry of hotels and, you know, inns and that kind of thing. Also, people didn't tend to move. All that much. And so if you went to another city, the chances were you didn't know anybody there. And so so there would be no travel unless a stranger was willing to open up their home to you, provide shelter, provide a meal, spend some of their own money, give some of their own resources to shelter you for a couple days as you're sort of passing through. And so and so hospitality was a value, you know, like Zeus, uh, among other things, was the god of hospitality. And there were like rules, there was etiquette, there was, you know, certain expectations on the host and certain expectations on the guest in order to make all of this work. But it, it really depended upon sort of the expectation that you were, that you would open up your home, that you would use some of your resources and that you would sort of offer yourself, open up yourself to, uh, to provide shelter and, and provide care for, for a stranger as they were traveling through. So when the Bible talks about hospitality, um, it's not introducing the concept. It, was, it would have been a concept that would have been well known. What the Bible does it takes, is take it to a whole nother level. 
when God makes his covenant agreement uh, with his people at Mount Sinai after he rescues them from Egypt and before the promised land, he takes the, the common sort of concept of hospitality and he ratchets it up way above what any other culture asked for. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. When he says this, he takes the concept of hospitality way beyond what any other culture uh, would have required or asked. And in, in, in one respect, he gives them a much deeper reason for hospitality. You know, the, the reason for hospitality in ancient cultures was expediency. So it would allow travel to happen. But, but God is saying, but you have a deeper reason for hospitality because you were foreigners in Egypt. And you were weary travelers in the wilderness. You would have died out there were it not for my hospitality. I fed you and I clothed you. And eventually I brought you home. They were saved by God's hospitality. And by the way, Paul would say in the New Testament that we have the same story. We were strangers and aliens. We were brought near because God's heart is to take the, take the one who is far away, take the one who has no access to him, to invite them as guests and then turn them into family. That is his heart. And so God is telling, God is telling the Israelites that because I saved you with my hospitality, I want you now to turn around and show that to other people. So they have a much deeper reason. For this, And then he also broadens the scope for hospitality. In ancient cultures, the scope of hospitality was for travelers passing through to provide care for a couple of nights. But then he says, I want you to provide care for the foreigner, for the fatherless, and the widow. And when he says foreigner, he's talking about um, immigrants and refugees or those who were otherwise other living in their midst. And then uh, he kind of clarifies this uh, in Leviticus. Leviticus 19 says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it's not just about travelers passing through. It's about the other living in their midst, because God's heart is to take the other, take the stranger, take the one who is far off, to invite them as guests and turn them into family. And in the Deuteronomy passage we read just a minute ago, he also mentions the, uh, the fatherless and the widow. And in so doing, he's, he's making reference to their own poor. And so, so they would have culturally had the expectation, they would have known that for travelers coming through, like, you know, we need to use our home, use our resources or whatever to help that. And, and, but, but he's saying, I want you to treat the poor as if they are weary travelers. I want you to treat the immigrant and the refugee as if they are weary travelers. It means taking our resources, using our home, using our money or whatever, to, and spending those on those who have less than us. And it means being so open to the stranger, so open to the other, so open to people who don't look like us, who don't 
live like us, who don't love like us, who don't have the same uh, worldview as us. And if they are lacking resources, then we open ourselves up and whatever resources we have, and we view them as weary travelers through life who just need some care and they need some compassion and they just need some help, regardless of who they are. And we say, oh my goodness, that's biblical hospitality? Yes, that is biblical hospitality. And that is what God is doing in the world. And that is what he calls his people to. And my question for us is, what would it be like if biblical hospitality was what God's people were known for? We have um, talked a lot here. And I've, I've, we've talked about the importance of shared meals. We've talked about the theology uh, of hospitality and what biblical hospitality, kind of the heart behind hospitality. And sometimes that can be a little bit overwhelming. And so I want to give just some practical things that we can all, very doable things that we can all commit ourselves to. Some of them, the first three are just going to be like in our personal lives and then how we can be engaged in hospitality here at Chase Oak. So the first sort of personal commitment is that I can open my home to my neighbors. Just invite neighbors into your home for the purpose of getting to know them better. And remember, it's, the purpose is not to impress. If you try too hard to impress, you can ruin it. Like, seek to be more interested than interesting. Number two, I can open my life to my network. That just means your, your friends and your colleagues, that you're willing to, to open up yourself a little bit more, share a little bit more about yourself, and also take the conversation a little bit deeper, which can feel a little bit scary because that might mean putting your neck out, you know, as a Christian. But it's important because um, it's much easier to demonstrate love and grace and acceptance if you're actually talking about real things and not just work and football. And in both of those, whether it's with your neighbors or whether it's with your network, um, leverage the power of the shared meal. Third thing we can do is eat together with other Christians informally all the time. Like however often you're doing it now, you could probably afford to do it more. That whatever community you have that you depend upon for encouragement and accountability or whatever, just seek for opportunities to meet informally, um, not sort of in structured environments. It doesn't have to be a Bible study all the time. With bullet points and a notebook, you know. I mean, sometimes the good stuff happens over wings and a beer. Am, am I right? So seek to, to meet with those people regularly. And those are things that we can all do. And your friends need it. Your neighbors need it. Your network needs it. We need it. But also here at Chase Oaks, as we, as we want to be a people of hospitality, here's some really doable things that you can do. You can uh, join one of our first impressions teams at one of our campuses. You know, we work really, really hard to make sure that every person that comes to a Chase Oaks campus, um, from the moment they drive onto the parking lot, from the moment that they leave, um, especially our visitors, just have a wonderful experience. No matter who they are, no matter what their life story has been or what they believe, we want them to feel noticed and seen. We want them to feel valued. We want them to feel cared for. We want them to feel like this is home. And so every campus has to have like multiple teams in order to come around and make that happen. It's part of our hospitality to our guests. Second thing that we can do, we can each say, I'm going to take personal responsibility for how welcome people feel around me. If you've been at Chase Oaks more than once, then you are one of us. If, you, if you've been here a while, you've probably heard us say that. That means if you've been here more than once, then just assume it is your responsibility to start the conversation with someone you don't know. 
I've heard people say, I was at that church for months and no one ever talked to me. And my response is, well, I'm sorry that didn't happen that first weekend, but all those other weekends, that's on you. And this, you know, that is true, you know, whether you're at Chase Oaks, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're at Chase Oaks, whether you're you know, in your place of business, where you work or in your neighborhood. If it's not your first day, just assume it's your responsibility to start the conversation. And by the way, I'm letting you in with this one on a little bit of my own self-talk, because don't let it don't let this fool you that I'm on stage talking to a bunch of people because I am a hardcore introvert. And social situations stress me out. And starting conversations with people I don't know is very hard for me. And I have this kind of self-talk as I come into social situations. It is my responsibility to start the conversation. If I can do it, you can do it. Trust me. The last thing is you can join a community partner team. This is part of our hospitality to our cities. You know, we have teams, you know, community partners that come around, you know, single parents that are struggling or at-risk children or youth or, you know, uh, first-generation immigrants or people who are food insecure. And we just see them as weary travelers. Regardless of who they are, they just need some care and they need some support and they need some help. So at a time when... We and our families and our neighbors and our friends, you know, and our, our network are struggling, as all of us are, through, a loan, through an epidemic of loneliness. We're also at a time when the, the perceptions of Christians and Christianity and the, and the church are at an all-time low. Hospitality is perhaps the most effective tool that we have to draw people together, and it's also... One of the most attractive things that we have to offer to a skeptical and cynical world. And so if you're feeling disconnected, let me urge you to take the initiative and to reach out and to leverage the power of shared meals. If you're feeling discouraged, as a lot of us are, as I kind of am a little bit about the state of the church, especially the evangelical church in America... Let me just make a suggestion that you just focus on hospitality for a while and say, you know, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to stop battling. I'm going to stop trying to win, stop trying to convince everybody else that they're wrong and I'm right. And instead, I'm going to open my home to my neighbors. I'm going to open my life to my network. I'm going to seek to be the face of hospitality at my church. And I'm going to use my resources to come alongside those who are vulnerable, those who are marginalized, those who don't look like me, those who are struggling, as if they are just weary travelers who could just use a little bit of help and a little bit of encouragement. I'm just going to focus on that for a while. The great news is when we do that, when we focus on hospitality, everybody wins. Everybody wins. We win. You know, we combat our own loneliness, our friends win, our community wins, and God's mission of hospitality shines bright to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have been saved by your hospitality. We were far off and you brought us close you invited us as guests and you turned us into family. Father, we thank you for what you've done in our lives as individuals, but we also thank you that we get to be a family with each other now. 
And I pray that you would help us to be your face, your ambassadors of your hospitality. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.